I don't know if you guys have checked out the new iPhone 12 Pro Max yet, but yo. That's my joint! That's my joint! What's good, friends and family, neighbors, near and far? Welcome to episode seven of the Yo, That's My John podcast, the podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life, dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. Nate 3.0, a.k.a. John Malkovich, a.k.a. John F. Kennedy, a.k.a. John F. Kennedy Jr., a.k.a. Pope John Paul II, a.k.a. John Claude Van Damme, a.k.a. the Mitchell Guzen of the podcast scene at your service. I'm not from around here. What to tell? Don't know what I want to be when I grow up? Don't care. Just as long as I live near the beach and don't have to wear a tie. Then I'll be styling. Let me tell you what styling is. The perfect session. A-frame wave. Ground swell. Spitting out salt water in your face. Doing a little lip action move. A 360 without a bounce. I call it liquid Drano wannabe bullwinkle. I tell you no lie, my friends. It's a consciousness razor. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and good spirits. Big ups to Tim Conley for yet another submission on Pope John Paul II. What can I say? My guy is a Johnosaur. See what I did there? In a little bit, I talked to journalist and author D.X. Ferris. I know I say this a lot, but we had a great conversation. Shit is inspiring as fuck, and I can't wait for you to hear it. On November 7th, HBO aired the 2020 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony inducting such legends as the Doobie Brothers, Nine Inch Nails, T-Rex, Whitney Houston, Depeche Mode, and the Notorious B.I.G. My congrats to all of them. Their inclusions are, to me, all deserved. Every year, the Hall inducts artists and influencers based on a committee nomination and then is voted on by more than 1,000 rock experts. And every year, there's an enormous debate as to who got in that shouldn't have and who didn't that should have. I'm not here to add to that debate, because what I'm about to say is not up for a debate. It's a definitive fact. It is time to let the monkeys into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I will say it again. It's time to put the monkeys in the Hall of Fame. Look, I could sit here all day and rattle off names of people that should be in the Hall of Fame. New York Dolls, Thin Lizzy, Bad Brains, Todd Rundgren, Link Ray, The Replacements, Eric B. and Rakim, Devo, Sheik, Africa Bombada, Graham, motherfucking Parsons. And those are just a few names off the list of people who've at least received nominations. The Monkees haven't even received a goddamn nomination. And I already hear you with your bullshit, but Nate, they didn't play their own instruments. Cool. Neither did Elvis. That guitar he shook his hips behind, that was for show. And guess what? The monkeys eventually did play their own instruments. But Nate, they didn't write their own songs. No, not all of them, but they did write a lot of their own songs. Specifically Mike Nesmith, who not only wrote for the monkeys, but also graced Linda Ronstadt with the song Different Drum. I'd also add, they wrote more than Elvis did. <laughs> well, that's fine, Nate, but they were a manufactured band. Oh, you mean like how Malcolm McLaurin manufactured the Sex Pistols? The Sex Pistols, who I might add, covered the monkeys, I'm not your stepping stone. Hmm, what do Elvis, Linda Ronstadt, and the Sex Pistols all have in common? They're all in the Hall of Fame! The Prefab Four are one of the best-selling acts of all time, having sold more than 75 million records worldwide. 
I'd put the Monkey Songbook up against almost anyone else. As the music historian Andrew Sandoval has written, the Monkees pioneered the format of the music video, and Nesmith would go on to create the concept and prototype of MTV. It was money made from the Monkees that gave us the films Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces and made Jack Nicholson a star. They were the first to use a Moog synthesizer on a rock recording. They gave Neil Diamond and fellow Hall of Fame snubs Carole King and Harry Nielsen a platform to showcase their songwriting. And they gave the Jimi Hendrix Experience its first U.S. concert tour exposure when the Monkees had them open for them on their 67 tour. 20 songs in the top 100 Billboard charts, including six in the top 10 and three number one hits. The Monkees are the Pete Rose of the Rock Hall of Fame. And it is time to let them in that bitch. I wanted to share with you a brilliant Monkees track that showcases, to me, their standing as more than how they are frequently portrayed. It's an outtake written by Nesmith that didn't make it on the Headquarters album. I couldn't decide whether to share the Monkees outtake, share the version they performed on the Johnny Cash show, or share the version that was finally released on Nesmith's first solo album, Magnetic South. So, I settled on just singing it for you myself. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the very beautiful Nine Times Blue. There's a certain something in the way you looked at me and said you'd stay that let me know that I was out of line. But I didn't know what else to do And like a fool I tested you By demanding things of you which weren't mine And now I feel like such a fool For making you crawl back to me But you did it with such love That you're standing far above me And all I did to you I'm sorry, now what can I do? I know that never in the world Could I have found me such a girl Who's there to pick me up before I fall And if in the end we should go Both our separate ways I know the lesson I've learned here Is worth it all And now I feel like such a fool For making you crawl back to me But you did it with such love That you're standing far above me And all I did to you I'm sorry now what can I do I know that never in the world Could I have found me such a girl Who's there to pick me up Before I fall And if in the end we should go both our separate ways I know the lesson I've learned here is worth it all My guest today is a journalist and author whose work has been featured in the pages of Alternative Press, Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, and on Vice.com and The AV Club, just to name a few. He's a recipient of the Ohio Society of Professional Journalists Best Reporter of the Year Award, the author of the 33 and a third book on Slayer's Rain and Blood, and the epic rock bio of a Pittsburgh legend, the story of Donny Iris and the Cruisers, all while being the creator of both the Good Advice series and the comic Suburban Metal Dad. 
is the hardest working dude I know. Gang, welcome to the show, the great DX Ferris. Which um, has just started now. Guys, if you are joining us today, my guest is the great DX Ferris. Thank you for joining me. All right, all right, all right. How you been, sir? Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's an honor, man. Um, you know, we kind of, uh, we can touch on this in a little bit, uh, but we, we go back a little bit and I haven't actually seen your face in a very long time. So it is good to see you and good to chat. Good to be here. Good to be here, man. As far as, as I'm aware of it, we have uh, maybe four, maybe five principal connections. Okay. Uh, number one, we are two of approximately five Americans who do not live in New York City, <laughs> who really give a shit about fun-loving criminals. 100%. Um, my brother being a third one. My brother being a third one. So number two, all three of us, you, me, and him, we are also arguably among the top 10 Grand Buffet fans in the entire world. I would say at least two, three, and four, right? <laughs> Demonstrably. So number, number three, you are my brother's best friend from college. That is correct. Now, I don't know if we have ever discussed this or if we've ever done it sober. I don't remember. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, but my best friend from college is also named Nate. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, so whatever it is, we are bound by forces larger than the both of us. <laughs> I love it. Uh, number four, as I guess uh, a subset of part three, perhaps, we are among an elite, small cadre of people who have beaten the groundbreaking video game Dragon's Lair. Fantastic. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, we have. And number five, parent threat, parenthetically, as long as we're talking rap rock in Philadelphia, we are also among an elite group to recognize how fucking awesome Bloodhound Gang is. Fantastic. Yes, we are. I mean, that is like, um, I, I would say um, we have probably, uh, the three of us, done more for the Bloodhound Gang than um, quite possibly the Bloodhound Gang. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we tried. We, we did tried. try. We did try. I got into the music writing game thinking that maybe it might be possible to uh, to get bands like Bloodhound Gang out there a little bit more, push the stuff that I liked. And then I, I saw the game didn't exactly work it that way. Uh, I kept going anyway, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so growing up, like what were what were you listening to? Like what was playing around the house? What was kind of your thing? Man, you know, it started, I was thinking about this lately. My, my music fandom started when my parents got me a little tiny Winnie the Pooh 45 player with a bunch of Disney songs, uh, stuff like Cruella DeVille, these little 45s that maybe had the song or maybe a storybook with them. Uh, Cruella DeVille, uh, I Want to Be Like You from the Jungle Book, a lot of good stuff. And, um, yeah, I had those. I was a kid. I guess I was walking at that point. And uh, I'm a nocturnal person. Like, I'm a, just a genetically hardwired night person. My body wants to be awake at night. And uh, as a kid, I used to spend a lot of time just lying in my room, just hollering, waiting for somebody to come in and talk to me or do something because I was lying there and I was bored. And uh, at a certain point, I was lying there screaming and nobody was coming in to see me. And I looked over and I saw that little record player there. And I was like, yeah, I could listen to some music. That would entertain me. 
and I put on some music and I felt better and that became uh, my company and that became my piece. And as I look at my, you can't really see it from the camera angle and I have this funky space age background going here <laughs> but i'm sitting talking to you in a room full of entirely too many cds and books and uh you know i'm a, a hardcore devotee of physical media uh and i just i need to have a library and i look at all this shit and i think you know that's it really goes back to me as a kid just sitting there feeling shitty needing something to do and reaching for some music so this whole media library here is uh a lifetime worth of self-medication for me. You know, if I need to feel up, I need to feel down, I need to chill, I need something. Um, music generally has delivered that through my life. Uh, my dad, you know, my brother has probably taught you, my dad was of the, uh, the Frank Sinatra generation. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born in 1933. He, uh, he blamed rock and roll for dismantling the world that he grew up in. He was really not comfortable with it. Um, late in his life, he became a very active Beach Boys fan, oddly, oh, nice. but that's another story. But um, yeah, he really hated that world. You know, he, that said, he had some interesting stuff in his record collection. He was a card-carrying Anglophile. Um, he was... By profession, he was a medievalist. He was an internationally ranked Chaucer scholar. So the Beatles were kind of his one exception, even before the beat and the uh, Beach Boys, Beastie Boys, Beach Boys, whatever they are. Okay. Um, so yeah, there were some Beatles in the house growing up, and that that kind of walked me through the door. And then he had like uh, Zappa's Hot Rats record. He was a uh, he was really? a jazz fan, yeah. But Beatles kind of like walked me in the in the door when I was looking through Dad's records and looking for something fun to listen to beyond captain kangaroo um yeah beatles kind of cracked it all open for me yeah so um here's a weird question that i ask and it's because it's something i do um probably as a bit of ocd but um do you still have that winnie the pooh record player you know i have a um i have one that i bought from ebay and uh -huh. have not actually opened up okay. so it's been sitting there for like five years and well again you can't see my background here but i don't have that one but i have one like it. it's so funny because it was literally going to be my follow-up was have you tracked it down if you don't and <laughs> you did because that's the kind of thing i do i mean like this stuff all around me down here is quite similar um specifically because uh, i just moved out of my family home or we moved my my father passed away last year and, oh sorry uh, well, i did not know it, that it, it you know it happens and it sucks but um but yeah so um we got rid of the family house and um so all of the stuff from like my old childhood bedroom and all that is all kind of surrounding me that's where this mickey mouse comes from that's where this is the keyboard i learned how to play music on you know like it's it, i'm literally surrounded by everything that i grew up with and um it, it, it's getting I, it's borderline hoarder nature but uh <laughs> well learn from my mistakes man ferris's rule of uh, ironic causality uh one application of that is that you are only going to need the stuff that you get rid of 
That's, that's so true. everything everything that you hold on to, you may never touch, but if you get rid of it, you are definitely within two weeks going to need it for something very important. It's so true. It's so true. There's so much stuff I had to throw out when we moved out of the house. We had like a big, huge dumpster outside and we were just tossing everything. So like I kept little things like, all right, here's my Star Wars figures. They're coming with me clearly. Um, here's my He-Man figures. They're coming with me, but some of the bigger stuff. Um, and then like I dumbly, very dumbly after all of that was finalized, did a Google search some of the stuff that I threw out and I was like, it was worth how much? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, they're just, you know, sadly there comes a point where, uh, there's only so much stuff, you know, as George Carlin said, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? That's right. And you just, you can't deal with all this stuff. You know, I, I would like to think that my, my kids will hold on to my library the way I have with some of my dads, but I don't dig through his shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, one time my wife told me, like, she was watching Dr. Phil and she was like, watch this. And Dr. Phil says, you know, those things that you're holding on to, it's not about them. It's what they make you feel and what they remind you of. And she showed me that like it was supposed to be some kind of big revelation. I was like, yeah, duh. Yeah, Yeah, that's why I kept it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I can't get rid of this this, uh, chamber music CD I'm never going to listen to because, you know, it's part of my dad in my head yeah absolutely you know and it's it's been a weird um thing uh since last year that i've been looking at some of the stuff of his that i saved and in my head i I started looking at my own stuff and wondering like is someone going to save that thinking that it meant something to me when literally it's just something i never threw out you know like but (laughs) yeah somebody really gonna hold on to my little plastic case full of like my my compilation series ferris music number one through nine the cassettes yes i don't think so oh, yeah they probably will though i mean i would like to get my hands on that kind of um uh, just, just a side tangent off that uh have you started this year's uh christmas mix yet you know i was just working on one of those i, I try to make my christmas mixes i'm a big 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 teeter fans i'm a huge christmas music fan i'm a christmas guy <laughs> Um, and I usually have my Christmas mixes made like between one and four years out. You know, I have something like uh, nine of them in various states of uh, assembly and address. And uh, last year's, I just last year I couldn't finish this year's quite while there was still snow on the ground and while the Christmas vibe was still in the air. You know, I try to make them by January second at very least so that way i can sit on it for at least a year and it feels fresh and i didn't listen to it like 30 times before like i started listening to it you know so it still feels good so uh i just this afternoon completed one of them but my proper mix um i gotta get on that i gotta get on that i had the election hanging over my head yeah so all your all year long i I was kind of wrestling with the issue uh spoilers here uh gil scott heron one of the last poets he has a song called winter in america okay i was thinking about whether or not i was going to use that to open the mix or whether or not i would have to or if i felt like i had to would it be appropriate to sure because it's not uh it's not a peppy jam (laughs) right so so yeah so i've been working on it to answer okay. your question. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, I will, I would love to see it when it, when it's in its uh, completion, you and your brother both make uh, the most killer uh, Christmas jam uh, mixtapes. So shout out to that. Um, they are without a doubt, uh, one of the best things of the season. Like I definitely uh, get on with that. 
Thank you. Thank you. This year's, I think, is going to be DXmas number 25, and they're not exactly in chronological order. So last year's was, now 2017, I'm looking at the list here, was 24. No, last year was 25. Yeah, this will be 26. I still have like 27 I'm working on, 28, 29, 30, ooh, 31, 32. Yeah, I got, <laughs> I got a few just lying around. It's awesome. You hustle hard in every aspect of your life. I yeah, you got to grind. Got to grind at this shit, you know? So jumping from the Beatles, like uh, what, 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 was, uh, what was your high school kind of um, flow? What were you getting into when you, you're in your prime to be able to start kind of taking control of your own music? Man, you know, I started listening. I started becoming an active music fan around 1981 when uh, Pac-Man was a big thing. And I heard there was a song about Pac-Man. Pac-Man Fever? I was like, what? Yeah, Pac-Man Fever, as it turned out. Uh, So I started listening to the radio around then. You know, Van Halen's cover of Pretty Woman was a current single at the time. So I started listening around then, and by the time high school had rolled around, I'd gravitated into uh, hard rock, metal, um, Quiet Riots, uh, the first big album that changed my life, Um, Motley Crue changed my life. Um, I was all ready to become a full-time card-carrying punk um, at a certain point, and then I discovered Slayer, and I was like, no... Hold up. <laughs> I'm not done with metal yet. <laughs> metal has, uh, has some good places it's going. So yeah, like, like high school was long enough or long, long ago enough. Uh, and we were enough in a, a backwoods town that I was uh, tapped to be both the, uh, the punk and the metal demographics in there for my first couple of years you like the weird shit you know yeah i graduated in a, a school of like maybe 300 people in a class of maybe 75 so it was not big so i had to be like both the punk and the metal guy for a little while okay okay so that was um you were in california pa at that time is that uh is that correct yeah yeah california pa which is about half an hour an hour south of pittsburgh which was this odd little mix of being a backwoods town but also a college town right. uh, a lot like iup is yeah uh yeah so so uh, you know on one hand um surrounded by a lot of people that would you know take time off to go hunting on the first day of, mm-hmm. uh, of the season. And on the other hand, you know, we had a very good college radio station that played a lot of punk, a lot of metal, that kind of thing really uh, exposed it, exposed us well. You know, when I look at Pittsburgh classic rock radio, I missed a lot of things. You know, I couldn't tell you what any major UFO songs are. I missed a lot of that shit. Okay. But with the little backwoods country uh, college radio station that we had, when I look back at 80s stuff like punk, new wave, metal, all the cool stuff happening in the 80s, I don't feel like I missed much. You know, I, I feel like that college radio station really made a difference in my life. Yeah. Um, so you and en- you ended up going to Cal. Did you work at the radio station at all? Uh, I did not. I did not. When I was young, I'm talking like high school, I thought I wanted to be a radio person. And I was lucky enough that a friend of mine connected me with a board op job at the time on a little AM station, a little bit of FM. And um I was very lucky in high school that what I was thinking about doing as a career was not good. 
uh, not good for me, not a good match for me. I hated just sitting in a room for hours and hours by myself doing other people's shit. You know, as an adult, I can write, I can do things, but sitting around like waiting between segments of music to play, that was just awful. I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to process anybody else's shit. I wanted to do my own shit. It took yeah. me a long time to figure out how to do that. But I knew early on that I did not want to become a radio guy. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what did you end up uh, going to uh, college for? I graduated. Um, I, my undergraduate degree is in professional writing journalism. Okay. okay. So journalism was what I went to school for. Um, I had a real kind of tumultuous time studying that, you know, I mean, if I could push a button and do anything and just change my life and give myself a superpower, I would want to be Stephen King. You know, I would love to be able to sit down and just write stories and novels and stuff. Um, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Not at this point. I'm still working on it. But uh, in college, I just, the further I got into my writing degree, the further and further and further I got into a bad case of writing block. I just, I couldn't write about anything. I couldn't make it happen. Yeah. Um, in maybe my junior year, I did an internship with the Department of Defense World War II 50th Anniversary Commemoration Committee uh, for a Pentagon subcommittee. And I had a writing assignment to finish just one, like a one-page sheet of informational stuff that I had done research on and write like a very short thing about it. And I couldn't even make that happen. Hmm. So something, uh, as I went through my undergraduate degree, for a lot of different reasons, writing was becoming more and more difficult to me. So I also didn't want to be one of those people that changed his major after like a hundred credits and wound up spending seven years in school. So I wound up uh, finishing up that journalism degree, but then I graduated and I pretty much wiped my ass with the journalism degree. <laughs> uh, I tried doing everything else I could have possibly maybe done. And that just, uh, that didn't take either. Okay. So um, that's kind of where we met. Uh, it, shortly after that, right, um, is, is yeah. around that period. Um, at what point did it kind of pivot that you were like, um, oh, I'm just going to write 50 million articles and books? Like, Because <laughs> how did it go from being a struggle to being a career? You know, um, what a, the, the short answer to that is that I found out what I wanted to write about. And once I started yeah. writing about what I liked, all of a sudden I was unblocked. All of a sudden I could unflow. All of a sudden I could sit there and talk forever and write forever and go, go, go. So when we met, I was in graduate school the second time. I was, I was going to uh, the same school that I went to originally, uh, Cal, one of the Pennsylvania state schools, little small school, but an effective school, cheap school, importantly. Yeah. But before that, I had gone to a real prestigious, really nice, really fancy Catholic uh, Pittsburgh institution called Duquesne really nice school, the kind of school when you graduate with, if you have one of their rings on your finger, that just opens doors for you. And uh, I was in the corporate communication program. It was a doctorate program. You know, if I had had the right discipline, right calling, whatever, I should have been Dr. Ferris a long time ago. Uh, I'm not. Um, I later got my PhD in Donnie Iris, but that's another story. <laughs> um, maybe Slayer too. 
But the whole time I was in this corporate communication program, all I could think about was the music I was listening to. All I could think about was stuff I wanted to write about. All I could think about was music magazines I was writing. Um, all I could think about was how, as an undergraduate, I had been marginally involved in the college paper but not super involved. You know, I always yeah. just did a little bit of stuff. But when I left to do one of my internships, I was next in line to be the editor of the college paper. And it just didn't feel like a good fit at the time. I was like, no, no, whatever's happening at school, I, I want to get out. It's just, I don't feel like I'm going in the right direction. So I graduated. Later, I went to grad school in this corporate uh, communication program. All I could think about was music and writing about music. Didn't know how it would ever get there, but I used to look at Alternative Press, which was then at the time, maybe the number four or five music magazine in the USA, and think like, how could I get there? How could I get there? Um, and I used to wish like, man, I, I wish I would have done more as an undergraduate. I wish I would have written about music, um, but I didn't. So now I'm here and uh, I'm stuck. So long story short, uh, I wound up dropping out of that program, tried to do some other things and on a, a real kind of weird balance of, of fate, twist and turn, I wound up back in grad school and I wound up in charge of the school paper um, as a uh, graduate assistant. And then I was like, well, here I have like a school paper, like at my fingertips, we need content this is a good opportunity to start writing some record reviews. So when I started writing record reviews and I realized that there was this band we liked called Grand Buffet and maybe I could interview them, it all just started falling into place. You know, I was able to interview Wolfpack. I was able to interview Sound of Virgin. I was able to write about Bloodhound Gang. And that didn't feel like beating my head against the wall. That felt like I was going somewhere. That felt like I had annihilated the wall and now I was running free. Yeah, and fun loving criminals were a big part of that. You know, when the when the second album came out, I was like, man, I just this album is just so much more interesting to me than anything I'm supposed to be doing at the library right now. <laughs> That's awesome. so I just heard something out there calling my name. I was like, no, I don't care what I got going out here. I'm going to go follow that shit. Yeah. So you know, you're you're kind of cutting your teeth there, working at the paper uh, in your writing. Um, and it's just kind of flowing out. Um, did you, do you think at that time, did you have a voice at that point or like, have you ever gone back and reread any of that early stuff and kind of seen where? No, man, I, I try not to look at my early stuff too much. Yeah. You know, as, as a writer, I think at the time I was a lot like a, a jazz uh, musician. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff that was technically correct, but like, Jesus Christ, you know, when you just turn it down, like, stop doing all the fancy shit, get to the point, play the hook. Yeah. You know, like, I'm a real, uh, as a grammarian, like, I have a real strong technical background in grammar, and I can do a lot of shit that, again, you know, is technically correct. But nobody wants to sit down and read this long, windy, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> Now I'm, now I'm much more about like, write me a four word sentence. Somebody does something, period. Billy yeah. likes to drink soda, period. Okay. That's a clear sentence. That's good communication. But as a young kid, I was just about like riff, riffing and trying to do like the Ingve Malmsteen equivalent of like English composition. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, that doesn't work for the writer. You know, it made yeah. me feel good at the time, but... And whenever you find yourself thinking, I am so awesome, I'm doing this shit right and nobody understands it, 
you probably need to do a little bit of self-reflection. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you, you have this pipe dream as you're, or seeming at the time, a pipe dream of um, working for Alternative Press, but then that happens. Uh, what was your first submission with them? Man, you know, I... <laughs> I had submitted a bunch of stuff to them. I'd been knocking on their, their door for a couple of years and I couldn't get them to say boo to me. You know, I was just trying and trying and sending a new resume, sending a new cover letter, sending a new cover letter. Could never get any kind of response. So I just tried and tried for like two years. And finally, I reached a point where I was working as a newspaper writer. I was living in Maryland at the time. Um... And I was just really broke at that point. Um, you know, the, the music magazine that I had been working for had folded. So I went from having one badly paying writing or I went from having two badly paying writing jobs to having just one badly paying writing job. And uh, I was broke, you know, and I was sitting there with a stack of bills. And a lot of those were music magazine uh, subscription renewal notices. And I was just looking at them and I was like, you know what? <laughs> If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Uh, I've been busting my ass for like a couple years relentlessly trying to get in. I've been doing some decent work. I can't even get them to say hi. So I'm done. I'm not going to renew these. This is the end. I guess I had a decent run, whatever. I'm going to have to find something else to do. I'll just be a straight news writer. And uh, like two hours later, I got a, uh, I forget if it was a call or an email, but uh, they reached out like, hey, you want to fly to Iowa and interview Slipknot? Like, what? <laughs> I don't know where this came from or why, but I will take it. Yeah. So it was one of those kind of classic situations where you're just beating your head against the door until you're like, unconscious and then all of a sudden one minute you wake up and you're inside like how'd i get in here i don't know <laughs> my that's, head hurts though that's awesome what year was that that was 2002 2002 okay. so yeah i've been writing for what is now the country's number two music magazine off and on for like going on 20 years like 18 years at this point that's amazing if if you dream it you can be it man that's it's it's great you know and, and here here's what my motivation was like like probably six years before that i bought a uh, rolling stone bought an issue of it and yeah, this would happen to me constantly through my life. I would pick up a music magazine that I paid good money for. Uh, they would run a review of something that sounded interesting to me. So I would go out and buy it when you had to spend money for a cassette, when you had to spend like $18, $20 for a CD. So you invest your hard-earned money in it's shitty. You know, it doesn't sound like they said it was, and it's not good the way they said it was. And they said it sounded like REM, but it doesn't sound like REM. It sucks. And uh, I bought an issue of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone said that the Bullworth soundtrack was one of the finest rap albums of the decade. Mm -hmm. So I went out and I bought it and I listened to it and it was, to put it mildly, not one yeah. of the finest rap albums of the decade or that year or anything. I'll respect to get a superstar. I was just going to say it's one track. It is one track. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, I was like, you know what? If these people at Rolling Stone do such a bad job, I think given the opportunity, I could do at least as poorly as they do. So that became like a driving, like 
idea for six years. Like, man, if these dummies do it, I'm going to get in the game. I'm going to get a piece of this shit too. Maybe I can even do it better, but there's no way I will do it worse. Yeah. And then um, you end so up that, ready. That's for an that attitude. Team. I think everybody What's All right, go ahead. Oh no, you go right ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Not that just, you know, as, as somebody who now is a teacher and I do some motivational writing, um, that's an attitude you need to have. Somebody out there is doing your dream job. Somebody's going to interview the Bloodhound Gang. Somebody's going to track down Jimmy Pop and do a book. Jimmy Pop, I want to do your book with you. Someone's going to do it. Um, might as well be you. You that's know, stuff tends to go to people who want it worst. Not who's the most qualified, not who's the most professional, not who should do it. How bad do you want it? So yeah. someone's going to do it. Might as well be you. I love it. I love it. And you, uh, you know, so you just, uh, 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 that's another thing you put out in the air. You ended up writing for Rolling Stone as well. Um, so, a little bit. So, yeah. So I got to think this Jimmy Pop book's going to work. Like, uh, we can make this happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I got questions. I got concerns. No one's going to do it as well as I am, Jimmy. Yeah. I'm here for you. Yeah, we'll set that up. We'll get that set up. We're putting that out right now because um, I know, you know, Jim is a Philly guy, so he's got to listen to this podcast. So Yeah, please, please. <laughs> hey, real quickly, here's my Philadelphia cred. Number one, of course, Bloodhound Gang, one of the best bands ever. We, we can agree on that, right? 100%. If you think we're wrong, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> Um, number two, I know who Tommy Conwell is. Philadelphia cred number Dude, two. Dude, I was going to say I was reading. Um, so I was doing some research on this, and I was reading the write up of the Donny Iris book. And when you name dropped Tommy Conwell, I was like, "Holy shit, he knows his thing." <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh, number three, I know who uh, McRad and Chuck Treese. I know who they are. Awesome. Uh, number four, Silver Linings Playbook. I don't know <laughs> if that counts, but I'm listing it. And number five, this is interesting. This is interesting. I just figured this out. I was planning on just saying I saw a Jane's Addiction there in 1997. Oh. But as part of my prep for this, I thought, you know what? I'll be precise. I'll see exactly when it was. We are talking today is November 9th, 2020, right? Yeah. I saw Jane's Addiction uh, in, on the relapse tour with Flea in Philadelphia on November 10th. 1997 whoa so you know if you uh incorporate leap day or whatever we're right on it yeah so we're right on it so that's my philadelphia cred i am impressed now completely blown away that you know chuck <laughs> treese um i actually one night um at a jam spot in the city um this place called the media bureau um got to play one of my original songs with chuck playing bass so no shit yeah 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 it was wow. like a so it's one of my one of my defining moments uh <laughs> Wow, yeah, McRad is one of those bands, you know, being a, me being a hardcore uh, devotee, aficionado, uh, amateur historian. Um, McRad is one of those bands that, that is not necessarily one of the varsity names in the evolution of skate punk, skate rock, whatever you want to call it, but they should be. Yeah. They should be. And, you know, also, uh, hardcore was very much generally a lily white fucking thing for most of the time so you know they had a lot of uh distinctions they, they should be bigger a 100 percent agree um little chuck trees trivia do you know that he played um uh bass on um river of dreams by billy joel <laughs> Are you kidding me? Nope. <laughs> no, get out of here. I'm serious. So I was reading an article with him um, 
this is go back 10, 15 years now, I guess. Um, but he was talking about um, how he played bass on that track and he was at like um, an amusement park with his kid and the song came on and he was like, you know, that's me playing bass. And his kid was like, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's how it is. That's how it is, man. Like I, I, my kids are both teenagers now. They're, they're 14, 17. And, you know, up until recently, they could give a shit like what I do and what I've done with my life. But the, the younger one, like talking to her, like every day, it's a little bit more like talking to my brother. Like she is thoroughly one of us. Awesome. Same kind of, yeah. Like she, uh, she's a big sublime fan, that kind of thing. Uh, one of her friends just discovered who Slayer is and got into them. So guess whose stock just went up like i was just gonna say your dad's stock just hit the fucking charts man (laughs) yeah so all of a sudden dad is somebody (laughs) that's awesome that's that's it doesn't matter what you do doesn't matter who you are if you're a dad your shit does not matter so um how did the speaking of slayer how did the slayer book come across come about um just to catch people up who are listening uh you wrote the um rain and blood uh 33 and a third uh book uh, did you, was that something you pitched? Was that something that was pitched to you to cover or? No, that, that was something that I felt oddly moved to do. You know, uh, again, I exist in the world as uh, DX Ferris, D like David, X like X-Ray. Um, just because that makes me easy to find on the internet. You know, when I started really writing, uh, the internet was new. But if you did a search for David Ferris, there would be like an engineer in Michigan or like some tech journalist in California. So I picked up an old uh, high school nickname, DX, and that just kind of sent me on my way with my branding, as we call it now. But friends and family generally call me Ferris. Uh, I'm an Ohio Society of Professional Journalists Reporter of the Year, so I'm decent at doing hard news reporting. Uh, I'm a communicator. I'm a writer. I'm a publisher. I'm a cartoonist. Uh, Some of the kids might call me a maker, I suppose. Uh, But I've written about nine books. Uh, Depends how you want to count them. Um, Genres range from motivational literature to cartoons. Uh, but I made my name as a music journalist. You know, I, I'd been writing for uh, Alternative Press off and on, doing some work for them for a few years. Uh, at the time, around 2006, 2007, I was a, a working music journalist writing for them. Um, I don't think I'd been in Rolling Stone yet. That might have been possible. Um, but I always liked that series of books, the 33 and a third series. And what that is, is uh, they're that little series of, uh, well, now it's a big series. It's a series of pocket-sized books that are all uh, inspired by or based on a classic album. So it covers the whole canon of classic rock albums, everything from the Beach Boys to the Beastie Boys, Radiohead to Jay Dilla, kind of covers anything that is... um, yeah, that has found some kind of cultural cachet or significance to it. You know, in recent years, it's become more hip hop friendly, obviously, if you're going to go into Jay Dilla. But there are, I think, over 150 at this point. And, and I was now one of the relatively early ones. My book was number 66 in the series. Um, so that's just something that I wanted to do. You know, I was a metal guy from way back. Uh, when I go back and I look at my college notebooks, like I wasn't listening to a lot of metal in the 90s. You know, the Bloodhound Gang re-engaged me in music in a way that I had not been for a couple of years. But when I look back through my old notebooks and planners, I was never far away from Slayer. 
you know, even when I was studying chem or uh, World Lit 101 in college and I wasn't listening to At The Gates at the time, I was still making rankings of Slayer albums. And I don't think I've ever sat down with a pen in my hand and not made a pentagram, you know, not yeah. since eighth grade. <laughs> So, yeah, I was just looking at the uh, the 33 and a third series, seeing what was there and what was not there. And me and my brother were talking and he was like, you know, you uh, should write one about uh, Paul's Boutique. That would be cool. That would be awesome. I was like, yeah, I should. That would be awesome to write a Paul's Boutique 33 and a third book. And then some dude wrote one and uh it was good so i couldn't even be salty about it and that, that that dude today is a good friend of mine uh dan leroy but uh paul's boutique was taken at that point but i still wanted to write one of those so i thought well uh what has the series not covered what is there to cover still um metal they haven't done a metal one and if you're going to take a serious look at any one metal album it should be slayers rain and blood because number one it rules ass number two rules ass number three fucking slayer number four rules ass but beyond that it was produced by rick rubin uh it was his first real rock record uh and rick rubin now has worked with something like 10 percent of the rock and roll hall of fame inductees which is a lot more than phil specter worked with uh but at the time he was just some long-haired new york rap dude uh it was engineered by andy wallace who mixed uh, nirvana's nevermind produced jeff buckley's grace uh mixed uh, guns and roses chinese democracy he's like the number one name in album mixing so if you're going to look at um, any serious or if you're going to look at any metal album seriously, Rain and Blood, I thought would be a good one to do. And uh, somehow they agreed with me. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned uh, that your, your your brother tipped you towards trying to write Paul's Boutique. He tipped me to ask you um, to tell me about trying to talk to Rick Rubin for this for this book. <laughs> well, I, I sort of did. I, I sort of didn't. Like, I, I interviewed him, but um, Rick is, like, so busy. He doesn't stop moving and come down to earth, like, much. So, his he was a big part of the book, and he was not a big part of the book at the same time. Yeah. Like, his approval and him liking the idea of the book was integral in getting the book done. You know, he liked the idea of his metal album um, being part of this, again, like canon documentation of things like, of albums by The Who and The Beachy Beastie Boys and Dusty Springfield and all these classic records. He really liked the idea of Slayer being um, correctly, correctly included as part of that list of great artists. So he liked the idea and he said, yeah, I think you should do it. And the band listened to him and the band agreed. So that was good. And he said he would talk to me for the album. And that was good too. But it was really, really, really hard to pin him down. Yeah. Um, so I would, I wound up just sending a lot of, initially I wound up sending a lot of questions to his, uh, his publicist. And he would get back to me with like yeses and noes. You know, I'd be like, can you confirm this or deny that or was it a or b or was it b or c or is this true and what i started noticing was uh, i would get these really really super fast responses typed in kind of like all lowercase letters 
And this was 2007 before texting was really a thing. There were like sidekicks. You remember those? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like some, some people had sidekicks, like the real people that were uh, road dogs, the people that lived out there and were like hardcore, like either tech people or people that just lived out on the road uh, going from warp store warped tour stop to warp tour stop you know those were the only people that really texted at the time but i started getting some of uh, ruben's responses and i would send him like a series of yes no questions but i would notice that some of those had like like i said longer answers attached to them but just typed really kind of quickly with a couple typos and one morning i was like like I sent some and they came back 20 minutes later. Like, are you kidding me? Like I sent Rick Rubin's publicist questions and she had to get them to him. And here are answers to me 20 minutes later. What happened? How does this work? And I realized like, holy shit. I think Rick Rubin is sitting in the studio doing whatever he's doing with one of those sidekick things strapped to his hip for vital communication in the Columbia records business empire, but he'll stop to do what he's or he'll stop what he's doing to answer questions about Slayer history from 1986. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. Okay. I got this. <laughs> so that kind of gave me like a window, like how to get to him, like by carefully crafting, like very precise, very exact questions. I could pull like one, two, three, four sentences out of, out of him at the time. Oh, that's awesome. So like, yeah, I didn't get to like talk to him, talk to him, but I was able to get him to um, cough up his thoughts, take the time, parse them quickly and get them to me. That's so yeah, awesome. in addition to talking to the whole band, I talked to uh, Andy Wallace, uh, the late great Jeff Hanneman before he passed. Uh, I was able to get everybody's input on how they made the record. That's great. Uh, so, you know, that comes out, does that kind of, um, does that bump your stock uh, as a writer? Like, do you get, does that open doors or did anybody else reach out to you and say, Hey, can you do us? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, people mention it like every now and then I think that definitely like, um, like I've been eating lunch on that book for a long time. Uh, part of what I realized with that, you know, I'm not complaining, but, um, you know, when I get checks for that book, it, yeah, they're beer money. They're nice. I appreciate it. But uh, that book also later convinced me of the power of independent media, which is one of the things I'm real evangelical about. Uh, I publish my own books for the most part. And the ones that I publish myself, I make a shitload more money uh, on than the ones done with a private press. I mean, the 33 and a third series is published by a press called uh, Bloomsbury. So technically, I'm on the same label as Neil Gaiman. Awesome. Um, but the checks that I get from that publishing house, uh, uh, not so impressive. Not really. <laughs> not all the time. Uh, I get a shit more or a shit ton more. Sorry, am I allowed to curse? Absolutely. It's a little late to ask this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I, uh, I get a lot more um, money out of the, uh, the books that I published myself. But that was a real good learning lesson. I mean, you got to start somewhere. So after uh, after spending a whole life studying people making major label deals and what it took to actually get a deal and owning the masters and learning hard lessons about that kind of stuff, I, uh, I was in a situation to kind of make that choice myself. And nine times out of 10, I will go indie. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, that's, uh, I would say this is, please forgive me this horrible segue. I'm like the king of making horrible segues, but I would say that's really good advice. And speaking of good advice, you have a good advice series. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how this came about, like how this kind of um, inspirational, motivational writing uh, came about. Um, because uh, it's some really phenomenal stuff. It's great. Man, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a growing franchise of books called Good Advice from dot, dot, dot. And what they are is uh, they are books that do a serious look at uh, popular culture. Uh, the first two in the series are about good fellas and professional writing. The professional writing one I wrote with my dude, Darren Paltrowitz, who is a, a prime mover on that one. And uh, they just take a look at things that people love, you know, people that have... Um, yeah, when you like something like a movie or pro wrestling, it's something you come back to every week, two times a week, five times a week. Um, and it's not for nothing. You know, it's something that you love. So since you love that kind of thing, what kind of lessons can you learn from it? You know, um, you know, my brother, you've heard some stories about our dad. You know, our yeah. dad was a lot like uh, Indiana Jones's dad, Sean Connery, R.I.P., uh, you know, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, Indiana Jones and has this uh, kind of argument with his dad where he says, you were a terrible dad. And Sean Connery, uh, again, who recently passed, looks at Indiana Jones and says, I was a wonderful father. And Indiana Jones doesn't even know how to respond to that. It's such a preposterous claim by his dad, who was hands off uh, entirely, but he was now claiming that he was a good father. So uh, Indiana Jones's dad says, I was a great father. I was never after you to wash your ears or be home uh, or ask what you were doing. Uh, I let you do what you wanted to do. Like, holy shit, that was my dad. That was dad. So I grew up with that kind of guy. So my dad let me find my own way. But on the other hand, he was not a real law. Uh, hands-on parent. You know, he wasn't one saying, this is how the world works. This is how you should do. You should always look a man in the eye, shake his hand. Uh, this is how you, how you negotiate. I had to pick up stuff like that from other teachers. And I got a lot of that from movies, frankly, you know, from The Godfather, from Goodfellas. Um, and that was really the genesis of Goodfellas. That was a movie I've watched a zillion times, something that I always took something new away from and something that I always learned from. And um, I just sat down one day and I started making a list of all the positive, that's an important thing, positive life lessons that you can learn from a movie like Goodfellas. That's great. So like, um, so, so you started with Goodfellas and you moved uh, to professional wrestling. Um, it, it, you said this is an ongoing series. Uh, do you have any others that you tried that did not work or, or do you no, know I have work? like right now I'm backed up. Like I could, I could never have another idea and just write the stuff that I want to write and probably work for another 10 years. But uh, unfortunately I have other things I got to do to pay the bills, yeah. uh, provide for, for my kids. But uh, I have one that I would love to write right now that I just don't have the time for. Uh, two of my friends are, are writing ones. Uh, we have a manuscript for one. I wish I could tell you about them. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to at some time in the future. But yeah, just people uh, have really kind of warmed up to the idea of you know, taking entertainment that you love and learn what you can learn from it. Yeah. You know, 
uh, pro wrestling is not a simple business. It's a very sophisticated, very difficult business. What is harder than pro wrestling? You got to take a beating and then still be able to stand up and speak articulately in a dramatic fashion. That's hard. Yeah. And not just that. I mean, like the lives of wrestlers, I, I feel like there's been a little more exposure into um, what they go through. But but like a road wrestler is without a doubt one of the uh, most kind of hardworking, get up, go do everything yourself kind of guys out there. Like there is a lot to learn um, in that area, which is why when I saw that you were putting that book out, like I was like, dude, that totally makes sense. Like that is the perfect. The <laughs> Every topic. wrestler is a Rocky story, you know, and worse, you know, I mean, Rocky got beat up in one fight. I mean, the shit you got to do to live through one single like wrestling prep session is ridiculous. 500 Hindu squats on top of cardio. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, I have to do that. Yeah. And then uh, uh, DDP wrote a forward uh, for that book. Um, you and I, uh, I will add this to your list of things, are both uh, practitioners of uh, DDP yoga. That's my um, John. That is my John. That's a good John. I tell you what, it, it completely fixed my back. I've fallen off. I haven't done it in a while, but my girlfriend still daily um, is hitting the stretches and all. And uh, but what a phenomenal story that guy has, you know? Like yeah, absolutely. I've I've hurt my back a couple times over the years, and I learned the hard way that if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And you know, ironically, the more you push yourself and the more you you work on your back and the more you're hard on your back, the better it feels. You know, you really get into trouble. You really get those body aches when you take it too easy and you just sit around and wait for yourself to get better. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So, um, you, um, kind of touched upon or talked about this a little earlier, but, um, uh, you wrote a book, uh, with Donnie Iris. Um, yeah, man. Nice diamond cutter. Very nice diamond cutter. <laughs> um, you wrote a book with Donnie Iris, um, who is a uh, Pittsburgh legend. Um, I, I'm not sure how many people outside of Pittsburgh know of him. Tell, tell everyone a little bit about uh, Donnie Iris and how that book came about. Donnie Iris is the classic rock king of Pittsburgh. Uh, he's one of those guys like Tommy Conwell that, you know, they can sell all the tickets to all the shows locally, but three hours outside of Philadelphia, three hours outside of Pittsburgh, people don't necessarily know who Donnie Iris is. Uh, and, you know, everybody has a place like that, but Donnie is unique among those kind of niche artists in that he and his creative partner and the people they've worked with have really reached the, uh, the depths, or not the depths, uh, some of them the depths, but the heights of the music industry as well. You know, his creative partner has written songs for uh, Santana. Uh, he's the only guy that wrote an outside song for Bon Jovi. The only oh. Bon Jovi song that Bon Jovi did not have a handwriting was by uh, Mark Avsek, Donnie Iris's creative partner. So those guys are not only local icons, but they've had a really interesting... Um, run as musicians you know they were signed to um the great philly soul label um the uh, i'm drawing a blank help me out here the um uh, it's right i i can um oh my god i'm gonna get kicked out of the city 
Um, yeah, but they uh, they they went to his first band, the Jaggers, went to Philly and recorded with Gamble and Huff. Duh. Okay, yeah, Gamble yeah. Records. Um, you know, they were there. You know, he he had a number one hit with the Jaggers before. Uh, they were around for some really interesting times, and uh, I was aware of some of that stuff, and nobody was documenting it. So I thought somebody should, and I thought that should be me. And after seven years of nagging those guys, they reluctantly agreed and let me write the book with them. Wow, seven years. So now is that seven years um, full court press or is that just like, ah, it's been a few months, let me hit them up and see if they're ready now? It was It was kind of like that. Like I, I knew of them and I was, um, his, his, I'm trying to think how to tell the story as quickly as possible. I was aware of those guys and I looked for any excuse possible to talk to his creative partner, Mark Avsek. And eventually I wrote what was probably the first ever full profile of that guy, like just a big cover story about him um, bringing his life's work to the attention of people saying, you know, this is when you say Donnie Iris, you're probably actually talking about Mark Avsek as well. Um. So I wrote that story and he liked it. So I would like once or twice a year go back to him and say, hey, we should do a book, dude. And he would go, no. So I'd wait a year, come back. Hey, we should do a book. Yeah, maybe. Let's talk about it. No. Come back a year later. Hey, remember we talked about that thing? Here's why you should do it. Yeah, maybe. No. So just for seven years of we should, no. We should, maybe. We should, no. Uh, Eventually, I, I broke him down. Yeah. Uh, so and we were, did it. Were you shocked uh, when he finally gave in that? It, it, oh my God, this is really happening. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a surprise, but I had been working for it. So uh, we were able to make it happen. Yeah. And then, you know, yet another, like a very um, thick book on something that very few people know about. Um, but um, very dense, a lot of great information in there. And it's a crazy, like, it's just crazy. The idea of um, local legends, like you said, like like Donnie Iris, like Tommy Conwell, like some of the guys. Bloodhound Gang? Like the Bloodhound Gang. You Not know, local. These, Those guys, legit legends. <laughs> especially in Germany uh, and in Russia, where they're not allowed anymore. Um, did you hear that story, by the way? That they no. got k- kicked out of Russia. Um, Evil Jared. Oh, was it because of the uniform? No, Evil Jared wiped his ass with the Russian flag. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it was a, almost an international incident. Um, well, by some guys. I, for one, welcome our new Kremlin overlords. <laughs> Um, but no, it's a crazy story that I I, I think is very interesting in, um, examining those kind of local legends, those people who are really huge in their own right, in their own pond, um, which is something I think you did phenomenally in that book, uh, showcase. Yeah. You know, my, my question for everything I write, you know, and this is where the, the, not readily apparent overlap is between a Slayer book and between motivational writing. Uh, You know, my question for people is never like, what's that like? You know, what's it like being a rock star? What's it like being a thrash god? Is that awesome? Yeah. Like, we all have a pretty accurate idea what backstage two o'clock in the morning on a Friday is like. We all know that. That doesn't change a lot if you're David Bowie or Slayer or, um, you know, Pennsylvania boys done well poison. We know what that's like. So to say, what's that like is kind of a useless question. Everybody says, says the same stuff. My question is, how did you do that? 
because that's what I really want to know. You're Slayer. While you're a thrash metal band from L.A., how did you wind up working with the king of New York hip-hop, Rick Rubin? So if you ask how instead of what's that like, say, like, how'd you do that? That opens up the... That opens up the doors, it gets people talking, um, that explores how it happened. So, you know, Donnie Iris, you know, if you had your single number one song in 1967, but it's 2017 and you're still a brand name in Pittsburgh, well, how do you keep yourself afloat as a working artist for 50 years? Um, that's not a question you hear asked every day. And the, the story is not the kind of thing you... Uh, you read about every time you pick up a rock book yeah yeah it, it's uh it, it's uh, it's fantastic to be able to um kind of understand and document these things um for people to kind of learn from you know it, it, so it is almost like an advice book uh continuation uh you know especially asking how like it is life lessons you are a chronicler of life lessons essentially but with a music kind of focus on it um and oh god no no no. i was just gonna say like you know if you look at my at my books there's a lot of disparate stuff in there but i think by the time i'm done with uh number 10 of 10 i think you'll see a pretty clear pattern um in there, you know, I, I think eventually you're going to see how those form not just random points, but are in fact a big connected circle. Yeah. So, uh, what are you, uh, you I, I know you have a, a, a chest full of ideas and all. Is there anything you're working on currently uh, that's kind of the main focus, or are you just still kind of uh, working here and there on different different ideas? Man, I have a list of. 16 secret evil plans okay. that are in various states of uh, completion. I can't talk about any of those right now. Uh, the one creative thing I'm doing right now is, uh, among other things, I'm a cartoonist. Uh, I religiously was able to put out my comic strip uh, at least twice a week, often very much more over 9.25 years. And then when this uh, global pandemic hit, that has thrown my schedule for a loop a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm, I'm kind of rushing to do is, uh, you know, year number 10, which we're in right now, was always going to be my, my final year of the strip anyway. But now I'm trying to finish up uh, and hit number 1,000 before uh, Christmas hits. So that's something that I'm rushing to do right now and then once that's done uh, i can launch a podcast uh, i can start writing a couple of the, the books that i want to do none of which i can talk about right now right, but thanks sure. for asking sure well for the uh people listening that comic strip is called suburban metal dad um and uh aptly titled uh we, we, we would call that autobiography right <laughs> no, it's fiction right, fiction especially if my wife's reading this or watching <laughs> fiction great great all right at this time if you are prepared i would like to put you through what we affectionately know as the jauntlet um these are two segments one hit wonders and the top 10 countdown um, Lay it on me are you prepared for the one hit wonders number one one hit wonder hagar or roth what kind of question is that you'd be surprised so i've had somebody say hagar and it threw me for a loop i was confused 
People are weird, man. People are weird. Uh, hey, another spectacularly captivating world premiere video. You can't Dave take TV. your eyes off of it. And you can only see it here. Has Sammy Hagar ever done anything close to that? Not no. at all. Look, I, I, I said this a few weeks ago um, when we were kind of memorializing um, Eddie Van Halen, but like Sammy is a great writer and I don't mean to take away from him when I say that it is so easy to say that the answer to that is, is that is uh, David Lee Roth. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I, I actually, um, the Hagar stuff has kind of grown on me. I used to just kind of, you know, it was like holy water to me. Like I was like, ah, get it away. <laughs> you know, it's going to burn me. Um, but it's really grown on me. Well, it's, it's two different bands, isn't it? You yeah. Know, it's just not, not the same thing. I just heard that um, um, during the time uh, that they were looking to replace Dave, that um, Patti Smith from Scandal was almost the lead singer of Van Halen, but she turned it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she didn't want if they were going to continue to call it, if they were going to continue calling it Van Halen, she didn't want to be part of that. That is so that that's like a whole other world. I want to know. I want to live in that world where that existed, even if just for an album, you know? Yeah, for real. Apparently, uh, other people that were invited to, uh, you know, at least audition to be a Van Halen lead singers at some point were uh, or included Australia's Jimmy Barnes, the guy from the NXS song featured on the Lost Boys soundtrack. Good time. Okay. So okay. the next time you hear that, which I've been rocking lately, it's a jam. Yeah. Uh, or John, one Thank might you. say. Yeah, I was going to say, please uh, be on brand. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he could have been in the mix as well, apparently. That's crazy. So, yeah, but th I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fundamentally ignorant question, Nate. Next. <laughs> okay, next one. Biggie or Pac? You know, I'm not... <sighs> I, I just this weekend was watching the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. In all respect to both of those dudes, I'm just not involved or invested in either of them. Um, if I had to choose one, I'm a I'm a big fan of Diddy from Made. Um, yes, and his acting work. Uh, so, out of respect for that, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> not one of those really my john no, no, okay all That's respect I'm, I'm a i'm an irish white guy in the suburbs uh, my <laughs> hip-hop cred does not matter here uh number three nirvana or pearl jam what do you think nirvana all yeah. the way yeah my one of my i i can never find it it might have been a tweet. It might have been an actual article at some point. And I, I like the early Pearl Jam as much as anybody does. We all do. But uh, somebody once wrote, and I wish I could remember who it was. Somebody said that it is like Pearl Jam at a certain point decided they were going to become the who. But they skipped the part where they wrote all the great songs. <laughs> so Pearl Jam were kind of on this forefront of artists that is now a, a full on pandemic that could kind of summon a vibe, but not really write any hooks. Um, and I don't like that, man. Give me, give me some classic rock. Give me some hooks. You know, Nirvana was everything that I loved. Punk, classic rock, all that stuff. Just spit shine to perfection. 
And uh, I never, I'm one of those guys who never did get over Kurt Cobain's death. You know, I got bummed. Um, I missed seeing the Beastie Boys on Lollapalooza the next year because I just wasn't into it. I was like, well, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to be sad that Kurt's dead. Wow. Which in retrospect might have been a mistake, but that's how I was feeling at the time. Yeah. Uh, number four, um, which is probably uh, one of the oldest uh, popular music questions of the rock era: Beatles or the Stones? I don't. I'll respect again. This is just me. I don't get the Stones. No, I, I no. I don't. I don't get them. I never did. Nothing about them ever really made me want to hear more, except playing with fire or play with fire. Um, and as far as I can tell there's not more that sounds like that okay i mean they're they're great they're iconic but just never important to me never spoke to me it they're another one who late in life there's like a lot of bands that i just didn't understand and then like one day like a song came on and i'm like i i wait i all right i get behind this um the stones are one um and uh bruce springsteen's another i hated bruce springsteen for the majority of my life well you're a philly guy yeah well (laughs) but um but yeah these weird bands and now like i listen to the stones more than i listen to the beatles and i don't know when that happened or how it happened (laughs) well there's like a 50-year back catalog of stuff that has not been all played to death on classic rock radio yeah you know, that's true. Of, normally like when i write a book i sit down and i write it and that's just the end of it i did start writing a book called buck the fetals <laughs> that was all about why nobody ever needed to hear anything about the beatles ever again because i mean they're just this kind of big like monolith like the beatles are there and it's been a long time since anybody said anything meaningful about that band like yeah okay tell me something new about paul mccartney and john lennon you can't it's been done the music's there it's awesome what else is there yeah but yeah beatles guy i'm a beatles guy okay uh the uh side note to that one who was your favorite beatle you know again i i had a monolithic appreciation of the beatles you know never at the height of my fandom that i really care about their inner workings so like i don't have a real sense of i i know who george harrison is versus who ringo was and the wilburys and uh what is life and all that shit but uh i was i never felt any kind of important distinction between you know john and paul you know the way my mind works is i want to know like what the synergy was you know if i i I don't care about them that much you know something about slayer made me want to really investigate carrie king's role versus jeff hanneman's but the beatles i think we have the music that's all i need to know I love it. That's a good answer. It's a good answer. Uh, uh, this is the regular um, final one-hit wonder. Prince or MJ? Um, Prince, you know, among other things, as far as we know, we never um, did anything that Michael allegedly did. But Prince is one of those guys that, uh, you know, I think is going to be opening up to me for the rest of my life. You know, I can never front like I was a card carrying fan. Um, you know, I cared enough to track down the Black Album and then realize why the, ne- why the Black Album was never released. Yeah. Uh, not for nothing. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's the whole thing. You know, I, th- I think people are going to be writing books about him for a long, long time. And that's a guy that deserves it. 
Um, and like I said, um, that's usually the last one. But you being um, someone who I know can answer this because uh, a lot of guests can't. And I'm pretty sure you have a pretty good opinion on this. I'm going to add one more one hit wonder. And that is, are you a use your illusion one or use your illusion two kind of guy? That's tough, man. That is a hard question. Um, the answer could change from day to day. Desert Island, I would probably go with one. There are more songs that I like on one. One has more songs, unquestionably. But, but, and this is a big but, two has maybe four good tunes, but among those tunes are Estranged and You Could Be Mine, which are the evolutionary pinnacle apotheosis of the Guns N' Roses thing. <laughs> so even though the album is not as good, um, arguably the two best Guns N' Roses songs are on that. Um, you know, as many people have before, you know, I've, I've often set out to try to mix a perfect album between the two, and I don't know if that can be done. I've never seen a satisfactory answer. But once while I was pondering that, it occurred to me that maybe the real version of Use Your Illusion 3 or 1.5, whatever you want to call it, maybe the ultimate expression of Use Your Illusion would be to strip out all the good songs and include all the worst songs. Mm. Maybe that's where the, the real third Use Your Illusion album lies. And it'd be interesting because it would be like separating the wheat from the chaff. So maybe those songs that are lesser become elevated in the new album lineup. I actually put it together because I, I bet I bet it would it would probably be a banger of an album. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this is some high next level theoretical shit. But one day I'll, I'll work on that when the the planets align. <laughs> awesome all right so that's the one hit wonders the next one is the top 10 countdown these are just personal choices of your Lay own me. um like i said i use john interchangeably it can mean anything you want it to be it can be music it can be anything we'll do so, the speed round i'll shut up here uh, <laughs> uh number one first john first john I, I think batman was the first thing that really got my attention yeah. you know in batman there was everything there was costumes there was drama there was music nelson riddle theme song uh there was violence it was all there man batman yeah. that that shows incredible that show and um the monkeys that was on at the same time are like two shows that i can literally put on right now and i feel like it can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any show that's on tv right now like those two shows uh, from the same era are absolutely brilliant good answer <laughs> um number two what is your current john what are you getting into right now Man, uh, I'm, I, you know, the older I get, I'm not that actively into music like I used to. You know, I'm not out there living it, so it doesn't really remind me of anything. I'm big into soundtrack music. So, like, my brother, like, we just had an email exchange. He was like, you know, Max Richter, he's this guy that did uh, music for the... Uh, for the leftovers like yeah yeah that's been my dude for like several years now he's like yeah you would say that like, no really <laughs> so yeah instrumental stuff um just stuff like uh the cloud atlas soundtrack that's one of, oh my like, god that that is a brilliant piece of of work right there both movie and and soundtrack like that whole thing uh, yeah that's what kind of like like made me switch gears permanently from pop music to soundtrack type music 
Okay. So that, like the Daredevil soundtrack by uh, John Paisano or Paisano, I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, really good stuff. Uh, Nicholas Bertel, really good stuff from If Beale Street Could Talk, uh, soundtrack to that. I'm a Coltrane guy, a lot of jazz. But the older I get, I just want simple, melodic, long form stuff that is evocative, but not distracting. Okay, okay. Soundtrack music, that's my John. Number three, what was your first concert? First, contra- first concert was either Donny Iris and the Cruisers or possibly John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, okay. the band behind the soundtrack for Eddie and the Cruisers. So either way, the Cruisers. The Cruisers. <laughs> uh, number four, what was the last concert you were at? Last concert I went to, like, I saw the Misfits reunion in Chicago at Riot Fest with 40,000 people in a general admission setting watching this historic concert take night under or take place at night under an almost full orange moon with everybody going crazy. And it was this insane platonic ideal of everything I ever wanted from a concert. Everybody there screaming every single word combined with like a Game of Thrones battlefield type experience. (laughs) I was in roughly the equivalent of like the fifth row. And it was just like a physical and mental and historic and all encompassing. Um, Everything I ever wanted a concert and normally did not get from a concert and i kind of retired from concerts after that now since then i went to see Kristen hirsch from throwing muses i went to see her playing an acoustic set in a church uh hmm. i felt that was worth making an excuse for yeah uh and it, it wasn't religious music not that there's anything wrong with that but like she was playing little small thing and i got to sit on a couch two feet away from her and just watch her play uh like yeah okay i'll make an exception for that and uh i took my younger kid to see the 1975 but that doesn't really count all right all right um so that's last concert number five what has been um in your career of live music your favorite concert man i the misfits like i just said was everything i ever wanted in a concert uh i saw slayer play on the south of heaven tour their third album Uh, i saw them play in a roller rink that um held maybe 600 800 people i'm pretty sure the the amount of people packed in was closer to 2000 maybe three uh and it was them at the absolute height of their powers playing a roller rink and that was another one just everything you could want from a concert it was a physical like rugby game of a concert it was loud everybody screaming every word moshing it was so dense you could like pick up your feet and you wouldn't fall over because you were just pressed in by so many people and after that you know not a lot of shows really impressed me yeah yeah makes sense um i know you say you're retired from it but number six who have you never seen live that you wish you would have they can be alive and or dead oh man i think about this a lot I think about this a lot. You know, I have a list of uh, bands that I could go see if, uh, if I time traveled. Uh, if I had to pick one, depending on what day you catch me, uh, I'd probably go David Lee Roth solo. Um, I had tickets to the Eat em and Smile tour, but uh, my dad grew up in the inner city. He never had to really drive, never really had opportunities to drive. So he was not a confident driver. And if the road was not clean, 
Um, he didn't want to drive on it. Um, so it snowed very lightly the night that that historic David Lee Roth concert took place in Pittsburgh. Uh, and he just didn't want to go. So we didn't go. Oh. Um, but he took me to a lot of other shows, so I can't be salty about that. <laughs> right on. But it right. would have been nice. Would have been nice. Number seven, uh, I feel like you'll have a, a good one for this. Uh, name an unappreciated John, something you wish had more shine to it. Man, um, well, we already talked about Fun Love and Criminals. We already talked about the Bloodhound Gang. We know. We, we know. <laughs> we know. We know what's up. Uh, it's kind of nice. You know, it's funny. Remember, we saw them, one of the times we saw them in Metropole around 2000. I think the first time we saw them on that tour, um, we were coming out and I was like, man, I wish like they would do shows where it was like $100 a ticket and we didn't have to share them with all these assholes. Yeah. And that since has become like the trend. You know, like, okay, we'll do a show where like tickets are 250 bucks and only the hardcore people are coming to see them. Yeah. But uh, there's a band I love called Sound of Urchin that I saw opening up for uh, Two Skinny Jays initially, the, the late great Two Skinny Jays. Sound of Urchin. They do it all. They do poignant rock. They rock like hell. They're fun. Uh, guitar player is a big Zappa fan so he can rip out some real solos that are both musical and moving uh, anything you like about rock and roll they do it well sound of urchin all right i will definitely have to check them out I, you would I, like them you dig them the most baby I'm, <laughs> i don't doubt it i don't doubt it uh top 10 number eight what is your favorite album i know it's such a hard choice but man that's tough i i wrote <laughs> A book about Slayer's Rain and Blood. So that's that's a metric that indicates maybe that might be my favorite. I don't know. Um, I might go, you know, I, I could probably karaoke Pink Floyd's The Wall, but I'm a white guy of a certain age. So I think like there are some union regulations that say I have to be into those dudes, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe Dark Side of the Moon. That could be just like a perfect sonic artifact. Uh, okay. I know those are lame ones, but I mean, not for nothing. Have they sold that many copies and been that popular that long? Yeah. Um, you know, I had mentioned earlier about James telling me to ask about Rick Rubin. He also um, said that um, your favorite Pink Floyd stuff is everything post Roger Waters, which is weird, but... Uh... I <laughs> i kid i kid uh he told me quite the opposite <laughs> I would sue. this podcast goes to air with that remark yeah. uh, if it ain't roger waters if what roger ain't there it ain't floyd you yeah know this. yeah 100 percent uh number nine name an artist whose output you will consume anything they release even if you have to be apologetic for it trent reznor trent yeah. reznor he's time and time again he has earned it yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and that kind of dovetails with like my thing about soundtrack music and chill music. I mean, when uh, uh, Downward Spiral dropped, The Warm Place was one of my favorite points on that album. And I absolutely love, I mean, most, most great artists never do this. I love how that one little germ of a throw, not, not I don't want to say throwaway, but this weird little song on this landmark extreme album, just this little beautiful melodic instrumental passage would later grow into this whole giant wing of his career now yeah. he might have as many instrumental albums as, as he does proper nine inch nails releases you know yeah 
Um, you know, uh, Trent Reznor has um, one of my favorite moments, one of my favorite moments in a live performance ever. I saw him at the Virgin Mobile Festival. I can't even remember what year it was, um, but it was shortly after um, Kanye West came out and said that he didn't believe in festivals because it forces people to choose who they want to listen to. You know, two great bands could be playing at the same time. And uh, Nine Inch Nails were playing at the same time that Kanye was about to start. And Trent... <laughs> Trent goes, um, we're going to cut our set a little short tonight so that you guys can go watch Kanye so that he doesn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like one of my favorite moments. I was like, that is amazing. Um, and then Kanye was awesome too. So I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll hall of fame inductee Trent Reznor. That's awesome. Isn't it? It's Man, awesome. This is, this is also on my list of time travel shows, like if I had a time machine and I could go back, I would want to see them during the broken period when they were still playing clubs. Yeah. Um, that little insane scene, like, like they memorialized in uh, the wish video. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I would want to see. And one of the things I kick myself about is being in Pittsburgh in 19, 89, 1990, 1992, all that shit was happening like two hours from me. And I didn't know when I didn't think to, even after the first album broke, I didn't think to investigate it and yeah. think, oh, well, Nine Inch Nails is from Cleveland. Why don't I go over there and see the most awesome shit ever? <laughs> so that's something else that informs my, uh, my career as a rock writer. You know, I felt that many rock writers just did not service me the way I needed it. You know, nobody really grabbed me by the throat and said, Nine Inch Nails is right, right over there. there. Go, go. <laughs> so hopefully I've been able to uh, open people's eyes to a couple of cool things like that. Well, that's what I tried to do anyway. That's awesome. That brings us to our 10th and final of the top 10 countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? Man, favorite John of all time. He, I mentioned Batman already, so I might have to go with Glenn Danzig, my dude. Most talented guy to come out of the punk scene. It's a guy that had a number one classical album guy that had three great bands in a row guy that's been doing what he's doing continually for 23 over 40 years now uh he's written for two hall of fame artists johnny cash roy orbison he's been covered by two hall of fame artists metallica guns and roses uh glenn danzig man everything that dude does um yeah he's another dude that uh lifetime subscription for that's awesome that's awesome well uh, sir i thank you so much uh for doing this interview and joining me on the podcast here can you tell all of these fine people how they can find all of your good stuff on the internet man just uh go to twitter look for dx ferris that'll get me on and go to amazon all my shit's on amazon um all my stuff is rather, sorry, I'll, I'll be stuffy here. All my, my books are available at amazon.com where you, you can find many of the, the profound discourse that we were able to uncover about Slayer. But yeah, Amazon, Twitter, that's where I spend the most time. That's the best place to get my books. Um, it's all there. Check it out. I love it. Thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, round of applause for my friend DX Ferris. Hey, thank you for having me, brother. You know, I, um, I never met any of my brother's friends and thought like this kid's a dipshit. I don't, 
I, I don't get why he hangs out with this dude. So, I mean, you, you're among the good dudes, but obviously you are uh, at the top of the list. I and mean, we, we got stories we can tell. We didn't even get to talk about Grand Buffet much. So next time. Yes, but definitely. Thank you I for would, having me. Thank you. I would love you to for have having you on again. Me. It's been a lot of fun because we care about some shit that not a lot of people care about. And that's important to me. That is true. You know, I, I, and I think that's one of the things that has definitely bonded me and your brother, and I believe bonds us, is that we love fucking good shit that a lot of people overlook. And um, I absolutely appreciate that. And I also want to add that um, mostly for the listeners, you know this because we've had this conversation, but you were one of the first people I came to with this podcast idea because I wanted to bounce some ideas off of you. And um, you gave me a lot of um, incredible advice and a lot of help in getting this started. So it is a absolute honor to be able to have you on here. Um, yeah, you're doing well with it. You know, again, if you take anything away from this, just take away the idea that somebody out there is doing what you want to do and it might as well be you. And if you can find a little bit of time every day to work on it, you can make that happen. I love it. I love it. All right. I'm going to hit stop and then um, we can chat a little bit, but again, dude, thank you. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Check out the stuff. If it sounds good to you, if not have a great holiday season, be careful out there. Peace. And, and be on the lookout for the Christmas mix. <laughs> My thanks again to the great DX Ferris. You can find him on Twitter at DX Ferris and you can find his books available on Amazon.com. Check them out. You will not be disappointed. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on all your favorite podcast providers and share it across all the social medias. You know, like all the hip kids are saying nowadays, why don't you snap talk that tweet, Graham, my bro? Tell all your friends about it. And there is always still time to earn yourself that truly super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my John for updates and live streams. And you can find Yo That's My John on YouTube for the video companion to this podcast and more. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. Episode 7, now in the books. Thank you again for letting me borrow some of your time just to entertain. We got one more episode left of season one. Boy, how time flies. Well, until next time, everybody. Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production, written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Special thanks goes out to Fox Run Brands, Natalie Runkle Tompkins, and of course, the very lovely Kitty Dogman. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to see on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo, that's my John at gmail.com. But until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>